Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be looking at three passages of Scripture this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, Philippians chapter 2, and then we're going to end with John chapter 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Philippians chapter 2, and then John chapter 21. We began this year by talking about what it means to be a Christ-like disciple. What it means to live out the wonder of God's work in our lives, recognizing that we are to be challenged and changed and conformed to the character of God's Son, Jesus Christ. On January 20th, we started a little series that we called, How Do You Measure a Church? And as we have looked at this subject, we have understood a little bit about what God wants us to be as a body of believers that we call Calvary Baptist Church. Now, we took our text out of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 3, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Get it, Townsend. Come on. We took it out of here, and this is where we started, that you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And we asked ourselves, what is the church? And we discovered that the church is indeed a household of God. We are to example the wonder of who our God is as a household of God. We're also the church, the assembled ones of the living God. I want you to think about that for a minute. The living God is the one who we share together as we gather here to worship on Sunday morning. The living God is the one whom we live out in our world. The living God is the one who people need to see. So that we might glorify him as they see our good works and recognize it's all about the living God. So the church is indeed a household of God, church of assembled ones, but it's to be the pillar and buttress of truth. Our world is longing for truth. Our world is confused about truth. Our world does not understand what truth really is all about. And this assembly, this household, is to live out the truth that God has given to us so that we can be the kind of people that God wants us to be. Now, as we look at the church epistles, we discover that there are some qualities that God has given to us to live out. And in the epistles in Corinth and Thessalonica and Ephesus and Colossae, we identify the three qualities that help us understand what it means to be a healthy, productive, Christ-like church. Do you remember what they are? Faith, hope, and love. It's these three qualities that God wants from us as the household of God, the church of the living God, the assembled ones of the living God. Faith, hope, and love. Now let me remind you what these are. Faith. Faith is the confidence and trust that a local assembly, Calvary Baptist, 
has in Christ who is its head. You know, we can trust God. We can trust him to do all things well. Over the past weeks, we have looked into Romans chapter 8, and we have discovered how God works everything together for our good and his glory so that we might be conformed to Jesus Christ, right? And we know that all things work together for good. Amen? God is able to, and we have confidence, we have faith, we have trust that our God is able to do that. Now, hope. Hope is that doctrinal insight and stability in respect to our present and future relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Our hope is not just in the future, it's in the now. And it is indeed the stability that we have recognizing that our God is on the throne and is sovereign. Amen? That's our God. And if we are going to be a healthy, productive church, we must live in hope, confidence, stability, recognizing what our God wants to accomplish in our lives. And then there's love. Love. The manifestation of Christ-like disciples within a local body of believers. Internal and external Christ-likeness. And so as we think about love, we must understand that love can be defined this way. Love can be defined as Christ-likeness in our Now, as you look at Scripture, you will discover that in the New Testament, there are some 55 direct commands to love. And the truth is that the majority of these commands were written to local bodies of believers, local households of God, local assemblies, so that they might be lived out. For the glory of God. You see, we as believers do not live in isolation. We live as a corporate body. We as believers do not live individually without concern for anybody else. And it takes a community of believers relating to each other and encouraging one another and building up one another to love as Jesus Christ loved. And that's important. This morning, we are going to look at love. And we are going to see how important it is for us to recognize what our true love for Christ is all about as we understand his given body and shed blood. I'm going to take you to a couple of familiar passages. We've been here before. And I'm going to very quickly work us through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and Philippians chapter 2. All right? Are you in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Most of the time when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we read it from the positive standpoint. This is how love is defined. But I think it's important for us to look at the other side of 1 Corinthians 13 as we see what love is not. Now, I'm going to read the entire chapter to you this morning. There are 13 verses in 1 Corinthians 13. And you follow along in your copy of the Scripture, okay? 
If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Now you're familiar with that passage of scripture. You've read it a number of times. You know what the text says. But I think it's important as we look at that passage to understand what love is not. First of all, love is not lots of gifts. We are blessed here at Calvary. Amen? God has blessed this body of believers, this assembly of believers, this household of God with gifted people. And I am so thankful for that. But just because we have gifts does not mean that we have love. Paul writes that way, didn't he? I got gifts. I speak with the tongue of men and of angels. But if I don't have love, it's simply a lot of noise. Prophetic powers. But if I don't have love, if I, if I give everything that I have, and even if I give up myself and I don't do it, it's nothing. So we must understand that love is not just lots of gifts. There's something else. It's also important for us to understand that love does not operate according to the flesh. <laughs> With the Apostle Paul, I would say of me, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. You ever get fleshly? Well, I do that more often than I like to admit. Ask my wife. She won't tell you. What happens in the towns and home stays in the towns and home, right? <laughs> but love? True love does not operate according to the flesh. And we all have it. We all feel sorry for ourselves. We all get in that position where we don't want to and we just wish somebody would take notice because I need it now and if somebody's not noticing now, it doesn't count. 
That's not love. I think it's also important for us to understand that love does not vote for the temporary. Love looks at the long term. As you know, we have three kids. They're all married and serving the Lord. We have four grandkids. Good Friday, our youngest grandson received Jesus Christ as personal Savior. <laughs> when our kids were growing up, we weren't sure what they were going to be like when they grew up. You understand what I just said? Yeah, you've been there, right? And there were a lot of temporary setbacks in our kids' lives. And they taught me a lot. Love does not vote for the temporary. Love's in it for the long haul. And lastly, love is empty, if that's all it is. Everything is empty without so we look at what love is not, right? And my goal was not to exegete the passage. My goal was to help us understand the challenges that we have in our lives in order to love. And we've all been there. And yet, the chapter ends with, now abides faith, hope, and love. These three, the greatest of these is what class? Love. So let's look at what love is. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I want to look at the first five verses. Let me read them for you, please. Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what is love? If love is not what we found in 1 Corinthians 13, what is love? Well, love, first of all, looks on the interests of others. You can't be selfish in love. And in this text, we are reminded that we have to focus on the interests of others. Look with me at verse 4, will you please? It says, let each of you look not only on his own interests. Now stop right there. Paul recognizes that we're going to look on our own interests. But he says, don't only do that. Look on the interests of others. Recognize that it's not about taking a selfie. 
understand that there are more things in life than you, than me. But what's he say? But also to the interests of others. True love looks at the interests of others in their life. Now, that's a challenge for me. How about you? I struggle with that. True love is of one mind. Did you note that in the text? Verse 2 says, complete my joy by being of one mind. How do you do that? I mean, there are 300 people in here this morning. How do we become one mind? We think like Christ. That's the only way it's going to happen. Because your mind is different than my mind. Your thought process is different than my thought process. In order to understand that, all you have to do is look at a friend or a family member and recognize that you don't always come to the same conclusions, right? But true love operates with one mind, and that mind is the mind of Christ. And verse 5 says, let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's true love. True love also voices encouragement and edification. We need to build people up, not tear people down. I don't know about you, but I get beat up enough. I don't know about you, but I beat myself up enough. My mom used to say, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything. And we need to be voices of encouragement and edification in building up the body of Christ. Everybody needs that. I need it. You need it. And we need to build up the body. And lastly, true love enacts the mind of Christ. Remember what we said love was? Love is Christ-likeness. That's it. And when you struggle with this, Understand what you're struggling with is being like Jesus. That, that, that's it. You're struggling with being like Jesus. And so love, which helps us understand how we are to live, and is the manifestation of Christ-likeness. Is so necessary for our lives. Now go to John chapter 21, will you please? John chapter 21. As you are well aware, John chapter 21 is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 20, Mary and the ladies go to the tomb, discover the stone is rolled away, he's not there, she goes and gets Peter and John, they come and 
view that the body is gone. Mary's left there. She looks up. She sees one that she thinks is the gardener. It's Christ. The disciples are locked away for fear of the Jews. Christ appears in their midst. Eight days later, Thomas is now with them, and Christ appears. And he very kindly says to Thomas, reach your hand here and put it in the nail prints. Look at the scar. Be not faithless, but believing. And, and Thomas' great confession, my Lord and my God. Amen? So now we come to John 21. And Jesus is giving instruction to his disciples. He appears to them by the sea. He reveals himself to them. Says, you got any fish? Let's have a fish breakfast. And they just fellowship. Verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, there are some commentators that think that Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him because Peter had denied him three times. I'm not sure if that's the reason or not. But the reality is Jesus asked Peter this question. Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know. You know I love you. Now, in our English translations, we don't catch the full meaning of the text because there are two separate Greek words that are used in the text that our Bibles simply translate love. The first word is agape. The second word is phileo. Now, agape love is an intense, sacrificing, no reservation kind of love. Phileo kind of love is you're a good friend and a brother kind of love. Now, I want you to look up here because I want you to get it out of the text, all right? The first time Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds and said, oh, Lord, I phileo you. Peter, do you love me sacrificially? Peter said, oh, man, I want to be your friend. The second time Jesus asked the question, Peter, do you agape me? 
And Peter responds, Lord, you know I fillet. Oh, you? The third time, Jesus switches. And he says, Peter, do you fillet owe me? Peter says, yeah, I fillet owe you. Now, here's the deal. Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me or do you just want to be my friend? Peter, do you love me, or do you just want to be my friend? That's the real question, isn't it? Peter, do you love me, or do you just want to be 